0: Well, Pastor Kenny and Kathy are back at Kenny's alma mater this week, Wheaton College. He was asked to speak at their alumni weekend, uh, which I think is a really great honor for, for Pastor Kenny, and we're glad that he and Kathy were able to make it back there for that. It's an honor for me to be asked to fill in for him occasionally. And I always count it a real privilege to be able to open the word with you on a Sunday morning. So following Easter, uh, we started into a series called Apologetics, Answers to the Big Questions. And we're gonna be staying in that series this morning rather than switching gears towards Mother's Day, which may make this one of the more memorable Mother's Day messages. I'm actually glad that we're a a church that's not beholden to preaching every event on the calendar, Uh, but we are a church that is beholden to preaching God's word. That doesn't mean that we're not going to take time occasionally to preach on biblical motherhood and biblical fatherhood and parenting and things like that, but this morning we're going to continue to progress through our series on big questions. So if you haven't already, you can take out your outline that's in your bulletin and follow along there. The question we are looking at this morning, and it's a tough one, how can a loving God send people to hell? How can a loving God send people to hell? Turn in your Bible to the book of Revelation, to chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20, and I'll be reading verses 11 through 15. Let you get there. Eleven through fifteen. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what They had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. This is God's word. Well, this is a real account. It's not a parable. It's not symbolism. This event will take place with all of the reality that you and I are experiencing right here, right now. This scene is going to transpire. And you are going to be a part of it, whether you are a Christian or whether you're not a Christian. And there is nothing that you can do to avoid it. You are going to be there, and I am going to be there. So I don't want to soften this at all this morning. In fact, it would be unloving for me to do so. God wants us to hear this loud and clear this morning. However, I will read one other passage that gives a picture of what God is offering in a relationship with him that stands in stark contrast to hell. And this is found one chapter later in Revelation chapter 21. So if you're there, you can turn to Revelation chapter 21, and I'll read verses 3 through 8. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. He will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. The old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this and I will be their God and they will be my children. That would be nice if it stopped there, but it goes on in verse eight. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. So again, this is God's word. So the portion describing the new heaven and the new earth is wonderful to think about. But then starting in verse 8, we are again faced with the reality of hell and this question that often goes with it. How can a loving God send people to hell? So this is a question that many non-Christians really struggle with. And to be fair, it's a a question that a lot of Christians struggle with as well. Our American sensibilities are offended at the prospect of a God who gets angered at sin and will punish people for it. But if we are legitimately asking this question, and I do believe this is a legitimate question, then we need to be willing to examine the question itself because I think the question shows that we might not have a full understanding of God, of love, of justice, a full understanding of sin, and lastly, a full understanding of hell itself and how it is that people end up there. So this morning we're gonna look to answer our big question by asking two different questions. Number one, Are God's love and justice truly opposed to each other? And number two, what is the true essence of sin and evil? Once we understand the answers to those questions, um, a lot of our concerns about God's love and hell will be dealt with to some degree, but it's not going to make it any easier. But we will know what God says about it. So let's ask our first question. Are God's love and justice truly opposed to each other? It would be so convenient if the answer were yes and we only had to deal with one type of God or the other, but that is not the way the God of the Bible describes himself. What I want you to see is that hidden in this question of how can a loving God send people to hell is this belief that a truly loving God would never be angered by wrongdoing and would never punish someone for it. That's a hidden belief that's in that question. We so quickly wanna say, well, I, I believe in a God of love and a God of love would never get angry. A God of love would never punish someone for failing. But if we think about that statement, even just for a little bit, we're going to realize that it doesn't mesh with even our own experiences. Because, in fact, it's often out of our very love and care for people that we become angry. When we see injustice, we get angry. And rightfully so. Even in our sinful state, When we see wrongful violence perpetrated against another person, a righteous anger can well up within us. So why does that anger well up within us? Well, it's because we are created in the image of God. And as such, we are compelled to agree with God when we see injustice. So let me give you an example. A certain mother was upstairs, dutifully folding her family's laundry. All right, wait a minute. This is Mother's Day, so we're going to change the story a little bit. A certain mother is upstairs in her favorite reading nook. Uh, She's got a book in one hand, coffee in the other, and she's enjoying a slow Saturday morning away from the chaos of her home but she hears a big commotion going on downstairs. And so she rushes downstairs, and as she's running down the stairs, she hears glass break. And when she finally gets to the living room, she sees her 10-year-old and 12-year-old sons beating the living daylights out of each other. And she's horrified to see blood coming out of the nose of one son, and the other son has a big scratch across his face, and his shirt is torn and she is immediately angry. Why? Well, for several reasons. Because two of the people that she loves very, very much are doing real damage to each other right in front of her eyes. And the two of them together are doing real damage to her home. And beyond that, the two boys have broken the peace of her home And they've turned it into a war zone for their own ugly need of retaliation and getting back at each other. And this mother, she's a good mother. And so she's not indifferent to the situation. And so she even raises her voice and yells, stop it! And after she's broken up the fight, she rightfully hands out justice. It's actually because of the mother's love that she is angry and intervenes with justice. Well, God is angered much in the same way. He loves the people he created, all of them. He loves the world he created. He loves the peace that he commands because it honors him and allows his creation to flourish. And then he sees us ripping each other to shreds out of our own pride and selfishness, and he is rightfully angry. God is not indifferent. He loves. And so, out of his love, he will bring wrath and justice on evil. It's because the mother loves that she is committed to justice in stamping out harmful behavior. Because God loves, he is committed to justice and stamping out evil. Real love demands justice. Real love demands justice. Now, I know some of you have had very painful sin committed against you or against somebody in your family. And that doesn't mean that there can't be forgiveness and isn't forgiveness, but I want you to know that God is angry with that sin. Because God loves you and because God loves what is right, he will bring justice. A justice that will either fall on the perpetrator or a justice that will fall on Christ in place of the perpetrator. But God is not going to allow evil to go undealt with into eternity. He is going to make it right. If God was not committed to permanently punishing evil, then he would not be a loving God. Here's why. Evil will always, always rationalize its existence. Evil will always spread, because in order for it to feel justified about its existence, it must convince or even coerce others to share its view. Evil is never dormant. To leave evil is to leave a spreading cancer, and a good God would never allow a spreading cancer to ruin his hell. I'm sorry, his heaven. (laughs) A good God would never allow a spreading cancer to ruin his heaven. God's goodness and love demands that he deal with evil permanently. And that is why hell exists. Now there's something that we need to understand about hell. Hell is a place for punishment. Hell is not a place of discipline. There's a difference between discipline and punishment. This is on your outline. Discipline inflicts momentary discomfort or pain in order to grow a person toward right choices in the future punishment exacts payment for wrongdoing and it's always painful i'll say that again discipline inflicts momentary discomfort or pain in order to grow a person towards right choices in the future punishment exacts payment for wrongdoing and it's always painful punishment and discipline are different but both instruments are good and righteous in the hands of a perfect God. So in most cases, when we send someone to prison, we are both punishing and disciplining. We're exacting payment for the debt of the crime, but we're also intending to reform. But in some cases, some rarer cases, we're just punishing. When a person commits a truly heinous crime, it's possible that they end up with a life sentence or even multiple life sentences. And this is because justice says that the debt to be paid is so big that it can never be paid off. And so reforming that person for the sake of the general society is not in the plan. Hell is much the same way. The debt to God for evil is so big that it can never be paid. In fact, it's worse than that. The person who dies in their sin without accepting Christ is never set free from their sin and their sinful nature. And so they go on continuing to sin against God for all eternity, always adding more debt. And therefore, hell goes on into eternity, always adding more punishment. So after some reflection, we actually might find that we're okay with God punishing injustice, especially when injustice can be so egregious at times. But what about when the sin doesn't really seem that bad? Are we okay with people going to hell for the little sins? And you might say to yourself, I haven't done anything as terrible as all that. I haven't killed anybody. I haven't raped anybody. In fact, most of the time I'm, I'm trying to help people. I know I'm not perfect, but I feel like I'm a good person. And that leads us to our second question. What is the true essence of sin and evil? As Western people, we tend to think of, we th- tend to think of sin as just the breaking of rules. Don't murder, don't steal, don't sleep with somebody else's spouse, don't lie, don't cheat. And we might even agree that we break some of the rules sometimes, but that's the thing about rules, right? Everybody breaks them sometimes, and it's really not that big of a deal. But breaking the rules is not the essence of sin and evil. The Bible tells us that the problem is much worse than that problem lies at our core, and it's a core that we were born with because we are all the offspring of the original sinner, Adam. Jeremiah seventeen nine and 10, the human heart is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked, who really knows how bad it is but I the Lord search all hearts and examine secret motives. The wickedness of the heart is this. We desire to be completely free of God so that we can be our own God or so that we can make up a God of our own. The wickedness of the heart is this. We desire to be completely free of God so that we can be our own God or so that we can make up a God of our own. What does God tell us in Romans chapter three? No one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So it turns out, according to the Bible, there are no good people. There is no such thing as a good person, not one. We don't want to follow God. We want to do what we want to do. We don't want to trust God. We want to trust ourselves. By our sinful nature, we position ourselves to be completely free of God so that we can be completely free to please ourselves. And in the end, God says, Okay, there is a place where you can be free of me. In our culture today, we tend to believe the modern caricature of hell, which depicts sorrowful, repentant people crying, please no, please no, give me another chance, as God casts them into hell. But that is not the experience of hell that the Bible describes. In the parable of the rich man in Lazarus in Luke 16, the rich man, he never even asks to get out of hell but only that Lazarus be a good little servant and bring him some water. Timothy Keller writes this in his book, The Reason for God. It's on your outline. In short, hell is simply one's freely chosen identity apart from God on a trajectory into infinity. In eternity, this disintegration goes on forever. There is increasing isolation, denial, delusion, and self-absorption. When you lose all humility, you become out of touch with reality. No one ever asks to leave hell. The very idea of heaven seems to them a sham. Their delusion is that if they glorified God, they would somehow lose power and freedom. But in a supreme and tragic irony, their choice has ruined their own potential for greatness. Hell is, as Lewis says, the greatest monument to human freedom. Hell is the greatest monument to human freedom. So according to God, what is the greatest commandment? And we know this well. What is the commandment that supersedes all other commandments? Jesus says it very clearly in Matthew 22. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. So, the greatest breach of that commandment would be to love anything other than God, whether it be good or bad, with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Here's what Romans 1 tells us, starting in verse 21. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor give, gave thanks to him. They became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God and worshiped and served created things rather than the Creator. It's this exchange of the glory of the immortal God for idols, whatever shape or form they take, that is the true essence of sin and evil. I'll say it again. The exchange of the glory of the immortal God for idols, whatever they look like, is the true essence of sin and evil. Pastor John Piper said something in a sermon recently that I want to reiterate to you. And this is what he said We never leave God because we value him little. We always exchange God because we value something else more. Let me say that again. Nobody leaves God, forsakes God, abandons God, suppresses God, turns away from God simply because they value him little. We always turn away from God because we value something else more, which is why it is such a cosmic insult and infinite outrage. This is the infinite outrage of the universe, that human beings prefer something else to God. Now, just think that through, and we've all done it, and we're all tempted to do it every day. To exchange something means to express a preference. You don't exchange something that you value supremely for something that you value less. No you always exchange something for something that you want instead of it. You don't want that, you want the other thing and that's what exchange means. I want the other thing. And everybody does that with God. We look at his glory, we look at his power, we look at his goodness and we don't say thank you, we don't say you are great, we say, I'm going to trade you for what I really want. I'm going to trade you for something else. And that is why hell exists. Because it is an infinite sin. You can't do anything worse. There is nothing worse that can be done. Sins are just an expression of that. Sins get all their evil from that. what we call hurting each other is just little expressions of that. All the rottenness that we do to each other is deriving its rottenness from the ultimate rot of exchanging God and saying to the infinite creator, the most beautiful reality in the universe, I don't want you. I don't prefer you. You are not attractive to me. You're not satisfying to me. I get no pleasure from you. This other thing, this is my desire. This is my treasure. That is evil. That is the meaning of evil and all other evils get their evil from that. And for those who make that exchange ultimately God says to them, even angrily, because it's such an affront to his goodness, he says, okay, if that's what you want, I can give you what you want. I have a place where you can be free of me forever. And so God rightly judges them to hell and at the same time protects the glory and goodness of his eternal heaven. Both are right and good. R.C. Sproul writes this in his book, The Truths We Confess. Heaven declares the glory of God's grace. Hell declares the glory of God's justice. In both cases, the glory of God is made manifest. Now there's something that we have to understand about God and all of this teaching about judgment and hell. We might be tempted to think that God is always instantly angered and judges quickly, but that couldn't be further from the truth. In fact, the history laid out through the the entire Bible shows so clearly that God is slow to judge. He's slow to anger. Anything you wanna share? God does judge, and he judges thoroughly. But in the context of all of human history, his eternal judgments actually come very seldomly rather than constantly. Psalm 145, 8 and 9. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and rich. In love. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. The reason that God is slow to anger is to leave the maximum time for repentance. Not wanting that any should perish. And so if you're here today and you don't know Christ, and you still have life in your body, and you're still breathing, then God has been patient with you. You are still here because he wants you to have an opportunity to turn to him, to repent, including this opportunity right now. The reason the Bible teaches so thoroughly on hell is to give warning. Most of what we know about hell comes right from Jesus himself. The same person who also says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. So this morning Jesus wants you to see the reality of your situation and turn to him. Acts 17.30 tells us that God commands all people everywhere to repent. He commands that all people everywhere repent. Keep in mind that this command is one that's given out of love for you. For those who won't acknowledge their sin and won't accept God as their supreme love, then hell is the necessary justice of their own doing. And no matter how you look at it, it will be horrific. But that does not have to be your story. If you're not a follower of Jesus and you're hearing this today, then God wants you to know this, that even though you have been exchanging him for the things that your sinful self really wants, and right now you are his enemy, with all that going on, Jesus loves you more than you can imagine. He loves you. And he's worked out a different exchange. And if you trust his exchange, you won't be consigned to hell. You will no longer be his enemy. You will be his child. And his exchange is this. Jesus has taken your evil of exchanging him for something else and he placed that evil on himself all of it, and God poured out the anger and wrath and punishment that was originally coming to you, and he poured it out on Jesus as he died, paying for your sin. And in exchange, he's going to give you his righteousness. In exchange, he's going to give you a new heart. In exchange, he's gonna give you new life and the spirit that he will put inside of you will lead you to love him supremely. This is all to be yours if you will turn and repent of your sin. So turn to Christ, accept his exchange. Trust him that he has done this on your behalf. And if you will do that, you will be a child of God with his love and his glorious heaven to look forward to. As we read earlier, he will wipe away every tear from your eyes. You will be his and he will be yours forever. It might seem that this is too good to be true. It's too easy. But that is the good news of Jesus. There is no earning it There's only accepting it. And if you're considering it, then the time is now. The time is now. Dwight L. Moody, one of the great evangelists of the 19th century, he preached a fiery message one night in Chicago. And at the close of his message, he told everybody to go home and consider his challenge of accepting Christ. And that the following week, they would be called to make a decision. Well, that night, after the service, came the great Chicago fire, and many of the people who attended his service died. Moody said that after that experience, he would never again postpone the calling of people to commit their lives to Christ. So don't wait until next week. You don't know how much time you have. You're not guaranteed to be around next week. You might not even make it home today. In fact, you couldn't even tell me with absolute certainty that you're going to make it to the end of this service. It's true. Now is the time to respond to God's command to repent. God loves you with the deepest love that there is. He's not indifferent to your situation with sin. So on your behalf, he has made the most incredible exchange that has ever been made. His life for yours. That you may have his righteousness. And most importantly, that you may have him. And you will have him and his heaven forever. And right now he's calling you to accept it. The time is now. Don't wait. If that's you, the time is now. Will you please pray with me? If you are hearing this message and you would like to commit your life to Christ, then do that right now. Romans 10.9 says, If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If that is you, then declare to Jesus right now, Jesus, you are my Lord. I repent of the sin of choosing other things, including myself, over you. I accept your exchange. I believe it by faith. You will be my first love. Thank you, God. Thank you for saving me. Father, teach all of us to be amazed by your grace once again. In light of our wickedness and evil, your grace is truly incredible. We praise you for your justice. We know that it's good and it's right. Thank you for judging us righteous in Christ Jesus. We look forward to being with you and sharing life with you in the glory of your heaven. Until that day comes, Lord, lead us by your spirit to love you supremely and to help us choose you above everything. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. So be it, Lord. Amen. Our benediction today comes from 2 Corinthians 6, verses 1 and 2. As God's partners, we beg you not to accept this marvelous gift of God's kindness and then ignore it. For God says, at the right time, I heard you, On the day of salvation, I helped you. Indeed, the right time is now. Today is the day of salvation. Amen.